You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We continue, in some respects, the series that we began three weeks ago, going back through some of the essentials and core principles of who we are as a church, and we transition to the four pillars of what we stand on as a church. And this morning, you'll find our pillar of witness on Matthew, on the pages of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And if you don't have a Bible, just grab one of the Bibles and the seats in front of you, and you can find Matthew 28 on page 835. We'll be looking specifically at verses 16 through 20, as we consider the pillar of unafraid witness. My palms were sweating, my heartbeat and my breathing were increasing in their rapid rate, and as I was driving to my destination, I had those thoughts in my mind that you experience as you're experiencing these physical realities, and that was, I don't want to do this. Is there any way that I can get out of this? Is there a way that somehow I can manipulate the situation to fulfill what I was asked to do, but not fulfill what I was heading to do? What was that destination? It was witnessing at a local college to fulfill the requirements of my evangelism class. Why was I experiencing these emotional and physical symptoms? The answer to that question was because I was afraid. I was afraid to witness. And there's a lot of different influences to that kind of a fear. Some of them are the fear of rejection. Some of them are the fear of not even knowing where to start a conversation. Some fears are the result of what if somebody actually asks a question that I don't have the answer to. And I was driving to this destination thinking to myself, what is wrong with me? A follower of Jesus Christ, I should desire to witness, I should desire to share the good news of Jesus with others. It is a privilege, but it is also a responsibility. It is also a calling. Why am I so fearful? Well, fear 15 years later, the fear has resided significantly, and some of you would say, well, that's because you're a pastor. But you know what, 15 years ago I was in seminary and I was on staff at a church, so that wasn't an excuse. I actually had two very good conversations that night. But the fear that welled up inside of me then has subsided significantly, but I think it probably exists in most of you when you consider the topic of witnessing. And even when you look at the title in your notes and you see unafraid witness, you're, you're hoping that I'll somehow give you some tools that will help you be unafraid when you witness. But I think there's two factors that most influence our fear in witnessing. The first one is a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second one is a misunderstanding of what it means to witness And we've devolved this idea of witness into this formulaic concept 
That somehow witnessing is the four spiritual laws or the Romans road or, or somehow going back to the Ten Commandments and that is what witnessing is. Witnessing is a transaction. Witnessing is a sales pitch. But I think we'll see in the passage this morning that's a misunderstanding of witnessing and actually a limiting of the concept that Christ proclaimed. The big idea in your notes is that unafraid witness is rooted in a proper understanding of the gospel and applied as the outworking of the value we place on Christ. Let me read our passage, a passage known in Christian circles as the Great Commission. Many of you know we're part of the Great Commission Collective. It's a collective of over 100 churches across the world that are committed to advancing the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. It's found in these verses beginning in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him... They worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we desire to have an unafraid witness, let's look first of all that there are reasons to have fear in witnessing. There are reasons to have fear in witnessing. And I, I think sometimes we can consider those who boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and be convicted and think that somehow we should have this boldness and this courage and there should never be cause for fear. But there, there are reasons for fear. And we see that in the opening phrase of verse 16. Look at what it says. Now the 11 disciples... You know, the word now is actually the word in the original language that is but. In contrast. In contrast to what has just been presented. And because we aren't walking through the gospel of Matthew verse by verse, let me just remind you of the verses before. The verses before had a group of individuals who were fearful. These individuals were the guards. The guards that were sent to protect the, the tomb of Jesus. And they had experienced something that rightfully caused fear. It was angels descending and an earthquake that occurred. They also continued in their fear as they went back to the authorities who had given them this responsibility. And they were fearful to come back with the message that they had actually passed out in fear. And the body was actually gone. And the solution to their fear was that they actually proclaimed a lie and took a bribe. That's how they took care of their fear. But Jesus is addressing a group of individuals who themselves had fear. And it was a significant fear. And that fear is revealed in this phrase that now there were 11 of them. And if you're not familiar with Christianity, not familiar with the gospel, let me just explain to you that 11 is one less than 12. And so back in Mark 
chapter 3, which, by the way, that's a, a, a pitch for the gospel of Mark that we'll be continuing here in a couple weeks. But back in Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus on the mountain, that's interesting, we'll get to that in just a moment, called to himself and appointed 12 disciples. So the fact that Jesus' team was 12 and is now 11 shows us that there is a cause for fear. It also says that the disciples went where? Look at the text. They went to Galilee. Let me show you a map up on the screen. This is a map of Israel during the time of Jesus' day. And you can see here that there are different regions or different districts that the Roman Empire had divided Israel into. Down here is Judea. And Judea is where Jerusalem is. Judea is the capital, if you will, of Jerusalem. This is where the authorities were, and that's where Jesus had been crucified. So the greatest threat to the disciples of Jesus would have been down in Judea. So so Jesus, as a shepherd of his flock, sent them out of Judea into this kind of pink region of Galilee. The reason why he sent them out of there was because of great threat and great risk. There was reason to have fear for the disciples. I think often... When we think of the topic of witnessing, we are guilt-ridden. We think of people like William Carey, the father of modern missions, who spent most of his life as a missionary in India, or Hudson Taylor, the missionary to inland China. And we think about those individuals who they write books about, and we think, man, there was such sacrifice, such resolve for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's not just them. We all probably have people in our lives that put us to shame when it comes to witnessing. I had a classmate in seminary who, man, that guy would just witness even in the grocery checkout aisle. In fact, one time in particular, he came in to, to work. We were all sitting in our little intern area, intern closet. And he just shared with us that he had been in an accident. We said, oh, brother, man, what happened? And yeah, I ran into a guy, but I witnessed to him. And I'm sitting there thinking, what? Who is this guy? And I'm convicted, and I think, man, I should be like that. Even after an accident, I should be looking for opportunities for the gospel. Why do my palms sweat when I anticipate an opportunity? And the reason for it is because there's fear. I mean, you read these stories of Hudson Taylor and William Carey, if they're honest, and these men experienced fear. My buddy in seminary, even though he was amazing, he would experience fear. My point that I'm trying to drive at is before we get to the actual instruction of witnessing, before we actually get to the responsibility and the privilege that we have, let's just be real. There are reasons to be fearful, and it's right here in the text. Eleven disciples. This means that there was one that was no longer with them, and the individual was known by the name of Judas. And see, oftentimes we can have almost that, that felt board understanding of the gospel where Judas, we all are like, boo, hiss. And it's almost this understanding that we think that Judas went around in like this black robe with, you know, handlebar mustache, a greasy mustache, and he's like, oh, it's Judas. That's not who Judas was. 
Judas was one of them. In fact, so unexpected was Judas' role as a betrayer that in John 19, when the disciples are being told, in John 13, excuse me, that somebody in their group was going to betray Christ, Peter himself asked, is it I? This was unexpected. And now Jesus himself was about to leave them. He had just been crucified. There's a lot of reasons for them to be fearful. Beloved, oftentimes we have reasons for fear in our own witnessing. Let me give you three. The first one is that there are threats. There are threats to us as witnesses. There are threats in our places of employment. There are threats in our schools. There are threats in our neighborhoods. There are threats in social media. And listen, those threats are increasing, aren't they? They are massively increasing. And so let's be reminded that there are reasons for fear in witnessing. The second one is that it is an impossible task. Write down Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. John MacArthur wrote a book called Hard to Believe, and it is hard to believe. In fact, his book also reminds us that it is impossible to believe. Do you realize that the greatest formula... The, the, the greatest uh, approach to evangelism, the greatest eloquence, the greatest timing of what you say and how and when will not save somebody. Do you realize that no human being on their own without the Holy Spirit invading their will and changing their nature has the ability to respond to the gospel? Witnessing is impossible for success on our own. And that's reason to be fearful. Number three, even the greats feared. Even the great evangelists and apostles feared. Write down 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3. The apostle Paul says, I came to you, Corinthians, in fear. I mean, even Paul was afraid in his witness. Beloved, there are reasons to fear, but it doesn't stop there, does it? Thank God. We can be unafraid in our witness, which brings us to number two. There are resources for fear in witness. It says at the end of verse 16 that Jesus had directed the disciples to the mountain. Would you underline that? Would you circle the word the? Because I want to step back for a moment. Because in order for us to be able to understand verses 16, 17, and 18, we've got to do a very quick flyby of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You can flip back there if you want. But Matthew begins his gospel differently than the other three. He jumps right in, not to the birth of Jesus, not to the theological concept that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't even go to a a prophecy of the Old Testament like Mark does, with a voice crying in the wilderness, make make the path ready for the Messiah. He doesn't do that. He goes to a genealogy. I mean, that's one of the like black holes of the Old Testament, isn't it? Like Levitical law and genealogies, those are the skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead. 
But Matthew goes to a genealogy. Why is it? If you even look at verse 1, the individuals that he calls out is David and Abraham. And what he's doing is he's drawing the audience of the gospel of Matthew back to the covenants of God with his people. And as he walks through the genealogy, in the first two chapters, he does an amazing thing. He uses fulfillment quotations, planting a seed for a later sermon. And and what he does through those fulfillment quotations is parallel the life of Jesus with the history of Israel to show something. What is that something, Pastor Jeff? Thank you for asking. The answer is that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow pointing to a substance. Would you write that down? If you want to better understand the Old Testament, this phrase will help you understand the Old Testament in a massive way. Everything in the Old Testament is a shadow pointing to a substance, and that substance is Christ. So the Mosaic Law, the Abrahamic Covenant, Adam, Moses, David, Solomon, Israel, all of those great topics and people and concepts in the Old Testament have as their value that they are shadows pointing to the substance who is Christ. And that's Matthew's point of the gospel. That's why in Matthew 5, 17, On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to what? Fulfill them. I am the substance, Jesus says. Now, why is that important as we consider this particular passage? It's because of the resources that Jesus gives to his disciples and Matthew intentionally unpacks. You know, I love being a dad, but it isn't always easy. Uh, I hate seeing my girls have pain. I hate seeing them have fear. Now, one in particular who will remain nameless despises shots. I mean, I'm saying despises them. So like as the day is leading up to it, like all of a sudden you can see her little, she's starting to get nervous, there are tears, it's hard for her to sleep. And so just a few weeks ago, she had to have shots because Sally and I had evaluated the situation and said, okay, this is what's best for her health. So we told her, you got to do it. And in the days leading up to it, we we reminded her, you've done this before, you survived, mommy and daddy have done this. Here's what it feels like. No, no, we didn't do that. (laughs) But what was fascinating is that she actually had to have two shots. We just told her she had to have one. We weren't deceiving. We thought it was one. A few moments after it, guess what? She was laughing. She was bounding. She was no problem. She, She did it, and she had the resources, but she was, in some respects, crippled with fear. So what are the resources that Matthew and Jesus unpack here? Well, the first one, would you write this down, is God's plan will be accomplished. God's plan will be accomplished. See, see, listen, if the witnessing task is impossible for us, 
but yet it will be perfectly accomplished. You see how this is intended to give us courage and confidence? That when I go to a college to witness there as a task that is required of me, I know that no matter what, God is going to accomplish his mission. And the way that you can tell that is the words that I asked you to underline and circle, the mountain. Now this looks like just a geography reference, doesn't it? It looks like it's just for a a location for them to to gather, but it is actually theologically rich. Matthew does this several times in his gospel, and so does Mark. We've already talked about that at length. But let me just remind you, if you haven't been with us, that mountains played a significant role in the Bible. In fact, you can write down Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 13 and 14. In that passage, we see that the Garden of Eden was actually on a mountain. As we move into the rest of the narrative of Genesis, Genesis 22 has Abraham being told to sacrifice his son Isaac on a mountain called Moriah. As the Jews went out of Egypt... God dwelt with Moses on a mountain, Mount Sinai. There's the mountain of Zion, which is referred to as the city of God. There's also Mount Moriah, where God dwelt with the Jews in the temple right there in Jerusalem. As we get to the New Testament, we are also reminded in Hebrews 12, 22, that the New Jerusalem will be situated on a mountain. These mountains are crucial for us to understand the redemptive plan of God. And as it advances through the Old and New Testament toward Revelation, we are reminded that God will accomplish his plan. This is the reminder, I think, even as Jesus instructed his disciples to gather at not just a mountain, the mountain. So it's not just that God will accomplish his intended task. Number two, Jesus directs us. He directs us. The word directed means to give detailed instructions as to what must be done. Here Jesus tells the disciples, go to Galilee, to the mountain, but then he's also going to say, here's how you witness. Jesus gives us the detailed instructions that we need to accomplish his mission. He doesn't leave anything unknown. What a great resource that is. But number three, arguably one of the greatest resources we have in our task of witnessing is worship. Worship. To be in relationship with this God of the universe, to be in relationship as sinners who are unable to believe on our own, to be able to be in communion with the God of the universe, we who are sinful, communing with the holy, that's awesome. What a privilege that is. And this is not a religion, beloved. Listen, I talk to people who, are, who have been immersed in religion throughout their life. And it's not just religions like Catholicism. It's not just religions like Mormonism. 
It's also people who profess to be followers of Christ, but what's happened is they've settled into a rut of religion that I have to go to church, that I have to pray, that I have to give tithes and offerings so that God will bless me. That's religion. That's not relationship. Relationship is this God has saved me, not because of anything that I have done. He has opened my eyes to see spiritual truths. He's opened my eyes to see sin. He's responded to my request for forgiveness with completely justifying me. He has saved me. And because of that, I want to go to church. I want to pray. I want to give tithes and offerings. I want to do more. That's worship. And beloved, when that is the characteristic of our lives, then do you see how we can get to a place that when we witness, we are unafraid? See, do you see how these these words that we would often just read over when we understand them in the context of the gospel of Matthew and in the ancient context, we realize, wait, these are resources. So there are resources for fear and witness, but then it also says in verse 17 that some doubt it, doesn't it? I love this because it reminds us that these apostles are not individuals with halos over them that stay situated on a stained glass window. They are real people just like us. They had stresses, they had anxiety, they couldn't sleep at night. Some doubted. Now, what this doesn't mean is that they were derailing from the faith. What it means is that they were, they were still uncertain. They were having a difficult time connecting the dots. And we see that in Acts 2, don't we? These same apostles are in a room with it locked, and they're waiting. They needed help, and they got that help in the Holy Spirit. And guess what? We have that. There are resources, beloved, when it comes to our fear of witness. Number three, there, are, there is a resolution for fear in witness. Now, remember, I, I went back to the whole gospel of Matthew for a purpose, and, and the purpose continues in verse 18 because it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we read that, and we're like, yeah, we get it. All authority, he's Jesus. But but there's a biblical theology that is embedded in this that I want to show you. Would you turn back to Daniel chapter 7? Daniel chapter 7. Again, we've got to put our, our minds in the minds of the original audience. Most of us, as American Christians, have spent the majority of our Christian life in the New Testament. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because that's where Jesus is is ultimately on display. That's where Jesus gives instruction by which we are to follow. But the original audience would have been embedded in the Old Testament. And so we've got to put ourselves in their minds. And so when they heard this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is with high level of confidence that I say they were thinking of Daniel 7. Listen to Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the promise that the Jews were longing to see fulfilled. But see, they had a shadow understanding of the fulfillment of this. See, they had only seen the outlines in a dimly lit room. And so they were expecting that this is going to put Israel on display. This is going to shatter the bonds of the Roman Empire. We are going to be back in a place of prestige. But Jesus is shining light on that and saying, no, 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 no. It really doesn't have anything to do with you, ethnic Israel. It has everything to do with the substance. I am the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you see how the Daniel 7 context would have been so impactful for those disciples on the mountain receiving this instruction from Jesus? The authority that is given to him, I love this, is not just authority on earth. It's in heaven. There is no authority that is not accessible to Jesus Christ. If you live long enough, you realize that it's rare to find easy and complete solutions to complicated issues. You ever figure that out? Young married couples remember this. Marriage is complicated. You might get to a place where the honeymoon wears off. And if you get to that place and marriage doesn't fulfill what you thought it would fulfill, those who long to have children, when you have little babies, guess what? It isn't all just bliss. Single people who are a lot longer along in life without being married, thinking that that somehow, if you just had somebody in a relationship, that would solve everything. Beloved, listen, there are complicated situations in life that do not have easy and quick solutions. Now, that's especially important for us to hear in Johnson County. Because you know what we do in Johnson County when we see a complicated issue? We throw money at it. I had a friend that told me once that money greases the wheels. The idea with that is that the wheels move more smoothly when you have money. And they may, but I can guarantee you because I've never talked to somebody who's extremely wealthy who has said they have no problems in their life. Oftentimes the jobs that are required to have a lot of money demand a lot from those individuals. That impacts their families. Families that have two income parents that think that if we just have this, it will solve our problems. We can pay for our kids' education. Oftentimes, though not all the time, have stresses on their marriage that would not be there if they were not dual income. All my point in sharing this with you is that complicated situations and problems rarely have easy and quick solutions. And I think that's what Jesus is reminding us, is that when it comes to the complicated problems of sin, 
The solutions are not easy and quick, and they are certainly not found in ourselves. This is the reminder that Jesus is giving them as they're doubting, as they're considering the stress of what Jesus is calling them to. He is reminding them that, listen, it is not on you. All authority has been given to Jesus. Let me give you four applications of these remedies. First, I'll ask the team to put it up on the screen. Recalibrate that the problem of sin does not have easy and quick resolution. When there are problems in your life that are the result of sin, and not all of them are, but most of them are either the result of your sin, the sin of someone else, or living in a corrupt, fallen world. And so just know that most of these problems that are impacted by sin do not have quick and easy resolution. Second, God's timing rarely is our timing, but it is always perfect. This is a statement that is not just coming from a theological understanding. This is from my own life. God's timing is hardly ever our timing, but it is always perfect. Number three, gospel work is farming work. Listen, I respect those individuals who go to the corner and they have their blowhorn and they're, you know, as long as it's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I respect that. That is a boldness. But you ever wonder why when you knock on a door and you share the gospel with somebody that 9.9 times out of 10 they reject? It's because when you look in the gospel and when you look in the New Testament, you see the gospel work is farming work. Write down 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul describing the godly life, describing the gospel working in the lives of human beings provides three examples. The first one is a farmer, the second one is a soldier, and the third one is an athlete because he's reminding us that it takes time. No farmer plants the seed today and expects a bumper crop tomorrow. No soldier enlists and then expects to be a warrior the next day. No athlete expects to get on the team today and be an all-star tomorrow. It takes time, and this is a great reminder that gospel work is farming work. Number four, the authority for gospel progress relies not on us, but in the victorious Son of Man. And he has the authority, all authority, on heaven and on earth to accomplish the impossible task, and he chooses to do it. Listen to this. He chooses to do it through us. What a great remedy. What a great resolution. Which brings us to number four. There are remedies for fear in witness. It says in verse 19, go therefore. Would you circle therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? It is therefore verse 18. Based on 
the authority that the Son of Man has, that the Ancient of Days gave to him, that because he has won the victory over the grave, because he has trampled sin, because he has accomplished what the Father required, he has been given all authority. So now, therefore, in light of that, he gives us the remedy. The remedy is witnessing. And the definition is actually unexpected. See, oftentimes we think of witnessing in the go and the baptizing, don't we? We think of witnessing as the mission movement. We think of witnessing as sharing the good news of Jesus with unbelievers. And listen, it is, but that's too much of a limited scope of what witness is. Witness equals, we'll put this up on the screen, discipleship. Witness equals making disciples. And here at Ascend, we have a tagline, if you will, that is our mission statement that discipleship is seeing lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied to the glory of God. That is witness. And I think so oftentimes, we just think of the first part of that statement as witness, and that's too limited. But it must be that also. And to unpack this, Jesus gives us three, I'm going to get technical here, participles. Now, why is that important? Because there's only one imperative in these verses, and that is make disciples. Beloved, listen, witness is making disciples. You know, one of the recurring challenges that I've had in my life, both as a pastor and as a coach, is this principle right here. It's this idea of how do I effectively communicate something I have experienced so that someone else can understand it and do it themselves. I had this with my girls with softball. I think we started when they were in like fourth and fifth grade or fifth and sixth grade. I can't remember exactly the details. But but I'm walking out onto the field with a bunch of girls who have never held a softball in their lives. And, And I have experienced baseball at a pretty high level. So I'm looking at them. I'm considering my experience and I'm saying, okay, how how do I do this? Now, I could take the approach that some old school coaches did, and they're like, Jeff, you just need to see the ball and hit the ball. And I'm like, how? See, I've experienced what it feels like to have a bat in my hands. I know what it's like to have a a rhythm in your batting stance, to get rocked back, front foot land soft and early, explode through the baseball. I know what that feels like, but how do I teach a little girl that's never played before how to do that? And the same thing could happen with discipleship. And I experience this. I'll I'll preach a message. Like, I might even do this today with some of you, so get ready. And I might say, wasn't that awesome? How we connected the dots from Genesis to Revelation with, with the string of the mountain. Wasn't that awesome? And usually I get this response, and they're like, yeah, pretty cool. But what do I do with that? And I'll get that in counseling also, and I'll I'll lay out theology, and I'll hear people say, okay, yep, that's great. I understand that. Great verses, but what do I do with that? 
And it's that tension, isn't it? Of taking a concept that this is what the task is. This is what the theology is. But we also need the practical, don't we? And thankfully, the greatest preacher who ever lived doesn't leave me here on the cliff. He gives us three practical, here's what you do with it. Number one, you go. You go. I love this because the word actually unpacks the theology behind it and the practical reality behind it. Listen to this, and I think, think they might put something up on the screen. Maybe it's not there. But, but here's the definition with go. To move a considerable distance on a journey. Would you just write that down? Because it's gold. Let me unpack it here. The word go means to move a considerable distance on a journey. To to go means to move a considerable distance on a journey. To go means to move a considerable distance on a journey. Do you get it? See, witnessing is not just a one-off. You haven't witnessed if you just shared the gospel with somebody Whoo, that's done. No, it's a considerable journey. It's a considerable distance. What this reminds us, beloved, listen to this, is that witnessing is a way of life. Would you write that down? Witnessing is a way of life. It is not a transaction. Witnessing is going. You are characterized by this. You are constantly thinking and talking and doing it. And what is witnessing? It's making disciples. So, beloved, my question to you is, how are you doing on this? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple, are you going? Or are you just doing the journey for yourself? See, we make disciples by going, but this is who we are. We're we're characterized by this. We're having conversations with people that that point them to Christ. And yes, some of them are very quick, and some of them are just planting seeds, but we're always looking for that red apple. We're always looking for that next step. That is who we are. That is all of us, beloved, not just the missionaries. So we're going, but then second of all, we are baptizing. Baptizing. Now, this certainly includes the ordinance of baptism. There are other passages that refer to the ordinance. Romans 6, 1 through 14. Colossians 2, 9 through 15. But but I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making here. And the reason why I say that is because you can write this down. Luke chapter 24, verses 47 and 48. This is Luke's account of the same context here in Matthew. And he says nothing about baptism. He only talks about repentance and forgiveness. The point that Jesus is making here is that we are going to bring people from the dark into the light. And the light means that they turn their eyes toward Jesus, respond to the gospel with saving faith, with repentance, but also immerse themselves in the local church in a community of believers where discipleship will take them from rookie to multiplying veteran. That's what baptizing means. That's all there. And so, beloved, my question for you, first of all, is have you been baptized in this sense from death into life? 
Have you come to the place where you've acknowledged you're a sinner that cannot save yourself, that the debt that you owe to the God of the universe cannot even begun to be paid? Have you come to a place where the solution that is presented in Christ is something that you embrace, that you receive, that you respond to with repentance, committing your life to Christ? Then, beloved, you are baptized into the family of God. Now, there is a ceremony that Jesus and his disciples themselves chose to be part of the ordinance of the church. Is there anything special about the waters of baptism, spiritually speaking? No. Any more than there is the bread and the juice that we eat at the Lord's Supper. But these are symbols, just like in the Old Testament, that were very important, that Jesus and the disciples have chosen in the New Testament era to demonstrate something that has taken place in our hearts. So that's why we do it. So we baptize as part of making discipleship. So my question to you is, are you growing in this? Are you calling sinners to respond to the gospel? When's the last time you've actually called a sinner to respond to the gospel? See, most of us do a really amazing job with sharing the good news of Jesus, but then we kind of leave it at that and we're hoping that they'll be like, please, please let me be saved. That hardly ever happens. So we call people, do you want to respond? Do you want to ask God to forgive your sins? Do you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ? And we wait with anticipation to see if the Holy Spirit moves. Because if he doesn't, they will say no. And listen, beloved, that allows me to be able to sleep at night to realize that it's not on me. Was I faithful to the gospel? Did I share it? Yes. Okay, if they responded, that's, G- that's the Spirit. If they didn't, that's the Spirit. Uh, okay, that's okay. I just planted and watered. So are you growing and you're calling sinners to respond? But then also, have you publicly professed Christ? Have you stood before your church family and said, I'm not ashamed to say that I have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you haven't, we have a baptism class that's coming up soon. If you've got people in your small group, if you've got people in your family that they are followers of Jesus Christ, but they've never done what Jesus said you're supposed to do, what the disciples said in Acts chapter 2 you're supposed to do, then encourage them, hey, you probably should obey. Then, number three, are you growing in your understanding of Christ's design for the church? See, we've been unpacking this the last few weeks, and i got to tell you, what I have been preaching flies in the face of the church experience that I had most of my life. Most of my life, as long as I was at church Sunday morning for Sunday school and worship and Wednesday night and then any prayer meetings that came up, hey, I'm, I'm in a good place. But we've been unpacking over the last few weeks. No, 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 that's not the limitations of church. Church is a life. It is a, an activity. If we do this in community, we, we have small groups, we, we make disciples, we worship, walk, and work with each other, we are unafraid in our witness, that is church. And so are you growing, not only in your understanding of this, but your application of that? So we go, we baptize, but then number three, we teach. Teaching them to observe. 
I love what it says, all that I commanded you. What do you think in these 66 books he's referring to? All of it. Remember Luke 24, the road to Emmaus? He told the disciples, hey, the law and the prophets, they all point to me. He taught the Old Testament. The Gospels is what Jesus taught. The New Testament epistles are what Jesus taught. So Genesis to Revelation, it is our task in making disciples, in witnessing, to make sure that we are teaching the whole counsel of God. Now, this is a lifelong experience that will never be complete. And so it begins with you studying the entire scripture, but then it continues with you teaching others. And listen, if you haven't been trained and you're like, I can't do that, share with somebody what you read. Share with somebody what you learned today. That's teaching. But look at this. It's not just teaching knowledge. It's teaching to observe, to obey, to live it out. This is witnessing. This is making disciples. But the fourth remedy is embedded in here, and this is the most important one. Verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the priestly role of Jesus Christ, that no matter where we go, it says that we're to make disciples of all nations. So no matter where you go, whether it's in your classroom, your workplace, your neighborhood, across the ocean, he will be with you. And that is a reminder, first of all, for our own personal holiness. I was reflecting on that this morning. Wow, Jesus is with me. He's with me. He is my priest that is with me. I need to make sure that I am thinking and speaking in a way that honors him. But then it also reminds me that that all authority, it's with me all the time. That the tools that I need, is with me all the time. The resources, this is the greatest remedy. And we will continue to carry this out. So imagine what the disciples did as they came down off the mountain. Wow. What a privilege. What a responsibility. And the end of the age probably had them think through Habakkuk 2.14, listen to this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the disciples probably had a little skip in their jib. And they're walking down there like, yeah, let's do this. Let's make disciples. Beloved, listen, we have the same privilege and responsibility. 